Podcast. I'm Martin Saunders. As you know, we're on a little summer hiatus and we are replaying some of our favourite ever episodes uh, and interviews. And uh, this one is absolutely um, no exception. I think it's pretty much my favourite ever interview on the Youthscape podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be uh, reacquainting you with Dr. Andrew Root, who is a professor of youth ministry uh, based in the United States. And he is without doubt the uh, one of the smartest people I know. He's an absolute planet brain. I'll be honest, I'm not being humble here. Honestly, when I sit with him, I feel stupid. I sat with him a few weeks ago uh, and tried to have a conversation with him. And he was so clever that I was literally having to break down every sentence that he said and make sure I was somehow hanging on in there in the conversation. Uh, he's super smart and he's devoted his life to being super smart around youth ministry. And he's written some fantastic books, um, a new one out very soon. But uh, in this one, we talk about just a couple of his earlier books, um, definitely worth getting hold of. Um, uh, just to say, he does manage in this, uh, in this conversation, don't be put off, he does manage in this conversation to dumb it down for me. Uh, so if like me, you, know, you struggle with super smart people, don't worry. Don't worry, he keeps it simple. Uh, and we have a lovely wide-ranging conversation, which um, just for my benefit, sometimes strays into talking about sport as well. Uh, but this is, as I say, one of my favorite podcasts ever. Please enjoy listening again to Dr. Andrew Root. The Youthscape Podcast. So I'm very excited to be joined uh, transatlantically by my friend Andrew Root, who uh, is uh, right over in the United States, where, up at some ungodly hour to talk to me. Uh, what time is it there, Andy? Uh, I think it's like uh, 3.50 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> that is not, no, that's I'm not actually true. I'm kidding. I just wanted to act like I was uh, really dedicated to this <laughs> podcast. No, it's like, it's like 7.30, so all's good. That's still pretty good. Thank you for, for, for joining me. Um, I've, I've already explained to you that most people listen to this uh, podcast for Rachel, uh, who's who's not on this segment? So I hope people will stick with us for what I hope will be an enlightening uh, interview. Yeah, with you. actually, I thought I was going to be talking to Rachel, so I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so well, look, um, many people will have come across your your writing, Andy, um, and some people will have heard you at events and at the Youth Works Summit a couple of years ago. Um, but for the uninitiated, you just want to give us a little sort of potted history of of you and and your your kind of life and career as, as it pertains to youth ministry? Oh my gosh, yeah, I, I guess I can do that. Yeah, um, so yeah, I live here uh, in the States. I'm actually in Houston right now in some nondescript uh, hotel room, but uh, I live in the, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul, which uh, our football team, uh, American football team, is the Vikings, which broke my heart again. It's, uh, I've been a fan for 35 years, and they've never won anything oh, except, no. uh, or accomplished anything except breaking my heart, so... We got uh, beat by the Philadelphia Eagles last week, and now we host the Super Bowl um, next week in our city. So it's like, uh, oh. I don't know, it's it's like dating a, a really attractive person you've fallen in love with, and then she breaks up with you, and you have to be the bartender at her wedding in the next weekend. <laughs> is what it kind of feels like. Would you, would you still have hosted it if you'd been in the final? Can you have that in American football? 
Uh, yeah, so they, they picked the host city like four years oh, earlier. Oh, no. Um, so, so they made, yeah, we built this huge new stadium, which is in many ways completely unethical, where you spend $2 billion building an NFL football stadium while your you know, kids in your city can't eat, but, you know, you have yep. to have priorities in America. Yeah. Um, so you build this big stadium, and then the NFL, because they're, they're the mafia, they promise you you'll get a Super Bowl if you uh, spend taxpayer dollars on the stadium. So we knew we were going to have a Super Bowl for, for four years before uh, the season started, and then it looked like we would be the first team ever to actually host the Super Bowl and be in it. Oh. And then it all blew up in our face. So um, yeah. so anyhow, I'm sorry. that's not the question you asked. No, but that's we are we are all really sorry, because it seems to mean a lot to you. <laughs> yes, uh, probably very unspiritually it means uh, too much to me. But no, I teach uh, youth ministry classes at Luther Seminary and have written on youth ministry and just ministry and kind of thinking theologically about uh, the practice of ministry, but youth ministry specifically. And so, uh, yeah, that's what I what, what I do. I've uh, done a lot of youth ministry in my day, worked for Young Life for a while, and uh, my wife's a Presbyterian pastor, so still teach confirmation and things like that. And uh, yeah, so a little bit of practice, but then a lot of academic work and writing and things like that. So and, that's me. And and we might get onto some of your earlier books uh, if we have time. Um, but you actually have not just one, but two new books out in the last sort of few months, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's actually a little bit embarrassing. They just kind of came out. Um, it seems just a little bit arrogant to be like, everybody wants to read a new book by me every two months. So I apologize to people <laughs> that these that these things uh, came out kind of back to back. But um, yeah, one is this uh, book called um, Faith Formation in a Secular Age, which um, came out in October, I believe. Yeah. And now uh, we can talk about that a little bit if you want. But yes, then I have this book on science too called um, Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs and Zombies, which again, the title maybe makes it sound cooler than it is. Well, but, we'll, uh, we'll find that's out. You, um, you, you, you obviously, the first one, um, you mentioned their faith formation in secular age has, um, pretty much been on the, 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 the desk of everyone I know in youth ministry in the last, uh, three or four months. So I, I hope that's reflected in the royalties you receive, but um, certainly everyone in youth ministry in the UK seems to be reading that or, or if I'm honest, like me intending to read it, uh, let's just say that up front. Yeah, well, the most important thing is that you have a copy. Yes, exactly. That is the most important <laughs> thing. So, um, so, 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 do you just want to explain a little bit about um, uh, what that book is about? It, it, you know, it might sound a little self-explanatory from the title, but, but what, what's that trying to do? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, it, I guess it's a little self-explanatory, but um, I'm trying to be in dialogue with just some of the transitions that we've all experienced, we all know about, and maybe we've been even talking about for a few decades, but it, it feels like we've had a, a pretty passionate push, at least here in North America, that we have to really think about faith formation and mm. um, passing on faith and, and uh, you know, all sorts of uh, different objectives have come out from, from multiple different kind of youth ministry providers on thinking about how we keep young people from leaving the church or disaffiliating. Or It's been a kind of catchy phrase here in the States. We've uh, talked about the rise of the nuns, where yeah. the disaffiliation and the largest growing religious group is those who check none on a, on a survey. And so people have been pretty worried about that, I think, uh, here. And so I'm trying to step back a little bit and, and ask the question, well, how did we get here mm. in part 
one of the book. And then part two is kind of a theological critique because I've always found it kind of shocking that these, particularly these practical programs, which I think in many ways are really good, but what's kind of fascinating is that they never really define what faith is. And so, um, I mean, it's a kind of a presumed category, which I think unfortunately then kind of gets overtaken by more um, sociological um, or kind of gets we're just overtaken by the social sciences in a certain way, which I think the social sciences are incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the social sciences can define what faith is, that faith has a deeper spiritual and, and theological depth to it. And so it's it, the book is the book is kind of almost uh, part one and part two. It's almost two different books. I mean, it's not, but it kind of is where uh, part one is trying to show why this is so hard, why faith formation is actually such a difficult thing mm. um, in a secular age, and why a secular age kind of deems the passing on faith um, with really deep new challenges. And then part two is trying to respond to that theologically. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the shape it takes. And, and do, you, do you think this is a sign, uh, what we're seeing here, what you're describing in terms of concern in the American church? Is this... America starting to wake up from its slumber a little bit and and realize it's um, uh, no longer in that very safe space it used to be because we've had for many years kind of uh, dialogue with the US where Americans and youth ministry have said oh you guys in the UK you're well they said they used to say 25 30 years ahead of us you've become post-Christian whereas we're still very much a Christian nation are we starting to see a realization that that's no longer the case that you can't take for granted that um, everyone is just going to have some residual level of uh, Christian faith as they grow up. Yeah, I think that. I, yeah, I think there's ways that the American experience. Um, I mean, I think people in the main line in the states have have been much closer to the experience in the UK for decades. But I think the whole kind of the whole across Christianity in the states, I think we're starting to recognize it's similar. I think what's interesting, though, is that there always be, I think, in some sense, an American exception. And one of the things that's been fascinating with me and the dialogues I've been in uh, around this book has been with Charles Taylor's work, who's a Canadian uh, philosopher, um, who's, I think, just an absolute genius, um, taught at Oxford for a while, but spent most of his career at McGill in Montreal. But he's just a you know, he's as a Canadian, he can look right into the States, but also is connected uh, to Europe and, and to the UK as well. And, and I think his insights are really just quite profound. But one of the things that he points to that I think makes the American situation unique is he has these three kind of senses of, of ages, he says, where the, you have the kind of ancient regime, and then you have the age of mobilization, and then you have the age of authenticity. And this has gone over the last 500 years. And so in the, in the ancient regime, you just kind of have this sense like, well, the way the world is, um, is uh, a reflection of heaven. So just as God sits on God's throne, so the queen sits on her throne. And yeah. so, you know, everything is ordered in this way. And then you enter into the age of mobilization where it's not that our society has to reflect uh, heaven, but we, the people, get to do what we, we get to create the society we want to. So we mobilize our own way of life. Mm-hmm. And I think the American experience is we've never had a kind of an ancient regime. So we've always been mobilizing people. We mobilized our society. We created this. And in the religious context, that's made denominationalism in America a very 
kind of strong reality, almost a, a hyperly chaotic reality mm. where you can have all sorts of different Presbyterian denominations rising up. And when people don't like each other, they just mobilize a new kind of denomination. Mm. And, that, and that freedom to be able to mobilize gives people in America the perception that religion is theirs, um, that it's not some elite class. It's not, you know, the bishop who's connected to, um, you know, some high-born um, noble person or something that we always have been kind of able to mobilize it ourselves. So the American consciousness has no connection back to um, a world that most Europeans and, um, and people in the UK kind of have at least some kind of memory to yeah. uh, connected to. But Taylor's point is that we all find ourselves at this third age, which is the age of authenticity, where we have this kind of sense that every human being has a right to define for themselves what it means to be human. Um, and that the only authority you should really listen to is what actually speaks to you, what has veracity for you, what, what's meaningful for you. And I think we're all in that situation. Um, it's just how we got there has been a little bit different. But the challenge that that raises for all of us if you follow Taylor, and I, I agree with him here, is that it becomes much harder for people to imagine and even have their lives bent towards uh, a sense of a divine reality or a transcendent reality, mm. uh, that that becomes a much harder thing for them to, to kind of um, intuitively sense or know. Uh, so that's my big push is that if we're going to talk about forming faith, we have to talk about how concrete lived people in, encounter the presence of a living God. And in a secular age, that becomes hard, that becomes contested. Mm. That's not obvious for people. And so that becomes a real challenge for the youth worker. Um, you can do all sorts of great practices and get kids to pray. But if deeply they have kind of an unthought presumption like that, it's kind of an immature thing to think you could pray to an invisible person and they do something for you. Mm. That's a whole different different challenge, I yeah. think. So that's that's kind of the shape it takes. And 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 part of that, I suppose, is this this sense. I mean, we we talk about um, uh, tolerance here as being the sort of the great yeah. um, uh, the highest virtue. And so um, everybody gets to define their own truth. And the greatest sin that you can commit in modern culture is to tell somebody else their own truth isn't true. So, so in, in some senses, we've maybe thought that there's space for the gospel there because it gives us an opportunity to tell other people uh, what we believe. But I think increasingly, uh, I encounter this with young people. They're very happy to listen to what I have to say. They're not easily convinced by what I have to say that they that they somehow should change their beliefs or shape towards my my truth because they have their own distinct idea of what the truth is and 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 so there's this idea that we all we all operate with our own uh, and there's all this dis dissolution of of absolute truth which is then i suppose why it becomes very difficult to start suggesting well there's one way that's right yeah 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 that's right and so i yeah i think that's true i think in the age of authenticity you know you, you you'll hear young people and you'll hear their parents say well that's great that that works for you yeah i mean if that works for you that's great i'm not i'm not opposed to that working for you but that's not how that works for me and so yeah i mean i think that becomes a, a real challenge for us and we're talking about faith formation we're talking about forming young people in a way of being and acting in the world and uh and and I think that has to have a kind of deep sense of, of action. But if that just becomes hard for young people to imagine, that becomes a, a real challenge in ministry, I think. So, so what I mean, I don't want you to obviously give away the second half of the book here, but what are some of the kind of clues? What are some of the directions you think we need to move in 
if we are going to do uh, good faith formation in, in this different time that you describe, what, what is the kind of general direction you think we need to go in? Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to work out in, in, in kind of my description in, in this, in, in part of the problem, and I, I worry about the book in some ways that it, it feels a little uh, convoluted, basically, because I'm just working with Taylor, and, and Taylor's one of those philosophers who just makes up words and makes up concepts, and so you're always feeling, I think I know what he's saying, but I'm not sure I know what he's saying, and so, um, I mean, but because things work kind of both ways and so taylor's saying in this age of the secular is that people have all sorts of freedom to just kind of reject things and like we just said like well that works for you but that people still nevertheless have these deep longings and mm -hmm. so one of the most powerful things that i think taylor says is that in a secular age all believers doubt i mean there's just very few people who can live in this age and not be thrust into doubt sometimes it's just kind of the conditions in which we live in that we're going to doubt but what's fascinating is he says it also is true that in a secular age, sometimes all doubters believe. So mm -hmm. even people who don't believe anything or will state like to you, well, that's good for you that you go to church or that you think there's a God, but I don't need that. Sometimes they get crossed up and sometimes they wonder if there isn't more going on here. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the ways forward is to actually respect people's experience and to create spaces for them to articulate that experience and so um one of my big things in, in at least in the, in the context of the of, of the american church is that we've got to get past i think always talking about the church how the church needs a change or the leadership needs a change and i think what becomes actually transformational is if we find ways to actually talk about god mm -hmm. and to make god um kind of the focus of what we're talking about and i mean at, at its most base doing theology mm -hmm. and i don't mean doing it in this kind of academic vein but really working on talking a, a, about god and if the church is ever going to be able to respond or change or reform um, outside of some of our frustrations or beyond some of the frustrations we have, I think it will be conversations um, about the encounter with God. But those can't be disconnected from experience as well. So I try to wrestle with Paul. I mean, um, the second half of the book is, is tries to be kind of a biblical theology that uh, looks into what Paul actually thought about faith. And my perception is that what Paul really thinks faith is is an experience of the living Christ who comes to you in a death experience that comes to you in the shape of the cross. And so um, I think one of the things that happens in formation is that we have to create spaces for young people to articulate uh, their experiences, their experiences of being crossed up, their experiences of where they kind of sense a, a death experience and then be ministered to in and through those. And uh, so it's a, kind of a moment of, of con confession within that where we share in each other's lives in a deep way that I think we can start to make um, assertions that, that God is present in those moments. Mm. And that, that seems to resonate with, there's been a bit of research here recently in the UK um, around uh, how young people um, uh, find themselves interested in the big questions these days. And the, and the research actually said often they don't find themselves asking those, those big questions. They're, um, uh, they're, they're increasingly the kind of apologetics uh, approach is maybe redundant with, with modern young people because they're not asking those big questions anymore. But where, where the interest does show up is around those sort of moments of crisis. Um, where yeah. they're encountering suffering 
or or a death experience close to them. So I guess that would resonate with with what you're saying here that the the natural place for us to uh, to walk with young people and talk about God is when they are at their most vulnerable and and and, and most grief stricken, not so that we can take advantage of them when they're weak, but because that's perhaps where the cross is most relevant. Yeah, I think so. And where, um, yeah, and so it, it, it's definitely that kind of articulation of those moments. And and I want to push beyond those too. I mean, I don't think the, the point of youth ministry is, you know, to become like uh, a Norwegian metal band or something where we just kind of <laughs> all dress in black and are super into death. Um, I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's what actually Paul's getting at. You know, like Paul's trying to build these communities around joy and around flourishing. Yeah. And that's all there. But I think he thinks, I think Paul's trying to say that what faith is and what to be formed in faith is to take on this narrative shape of Jesus, li- Jesus life where it moves from cross to resurrection to ascension. It, it takes on, the, on these forms. And so, so um, I think, you know, when I try to work in the book, and this is where I get a little insecure, I tried to kind of a, show why moral therapeutic deism, which, of course, you guys all know in the UK yeah. and has been yeah. a major American academic kind of export of uh, the youth ministry scene, mm-hmm. that the kind of operative religion of the American teenagers is moral therapeutic deism. And Kenda Dean and Christian Smith have been the ones who've kind of pushed that, which I think is really good good interpretation, at least of the American context. And I've tried to show that actually that's exists in a larger cultural reality of this age of authenticity. Mm-hmm. But then my response has been, and this is where I'm insecure because I use like three Greek words to, to oppose it. But instead of moral therapeutic deism, the kind of faith we're trying to work is something that takes the shape of kenosis, hypostasis, and theosis. See, it makes all your listeners vomit just a little bit <laughs> in their mouth. Uh, but, uh, but my point is actually that we the way faith is formed is to kind of take this canonic moment where we kind of, we humble ourselves enough to be aware and open to listen to another person's death experience or to listen to another person's experience and in that moment of, of that shared kind of storytelling that, sh- that moment of sharing sharing and being with one another that we share in each other's person in a significant way so that becomes this kind of hypostatic moment of of being with and for each other and in those moments of being with and for each other, that's usually built around and, in, and through a death experience, we're, I think, taken up into the life of Christ, that something's transformed, that we uh, are bound to one another and in being bound to one another, being bound to Christ. So I'm trying to do something that's a little odd in this book, at least from the American scene, and, and trying to push, uh, push a deeper kind of Christology that, that youth ministry is about inviting. It's not about just getting young people committed to the institutional church and to come to youth groups or whatever programming you do, but it really is about how do we make the assertion, how do we even imagine what Paul thinks faith is, which is to be in Christ, mm. that you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. What does that mean practically? What? How do we make sense of that? And how could you how could you talk about that in the secular age? How could you actually talk about one's being, being in Christ, and Christ being being in you? Mm. Um, that's, that's a really hard thing for us to get our our uh, mind around, but I'm trying to assert that there are actually these deep moments of relational connection, which connects with my earlier work, I guess, that these deep moments of relational connection where we care for one another, where we minister to one another, Lord, Lord, when did we see you from, you know, Matthew 25, mm-hmm. when you shared in the life of your neighbor, when you humbled yourself and ministered to them and shared in their personhood, I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was concretely present in your midst. Mm-hmm. So really all the book in the second half is trying to articulate is, um, 
how does Matthew 25 really work? And, and how is Paul drawing on that? And how's Paul's own story of being this zealot guy who's going to purify um, his conception of, of Judaism and then gets knocked to the ground and the person of Jesus shows up to him and he has to reformulate what reality even looks like. And um, uh, how does Paul imagine faith is formed in that way? Wow. Well, I mean, the book, you've done a masterful job of selling the book there. So I think, you know, uh, even people who have it on their desk and haven't yet opened it will now <laughs> turn to it immediately and pick it up. But the, the book is A Faithful Nation in a Secular Age. Now, I, let's, we're going to talk about your other book. Um, you know, you remind me a little bit of the filmmaker Danny Boyle. Um, we, oh, we, yeah. we, we have um, we, we have met in person. And uh, and of course, I you and I look quite similar. Um, you're sort of more attractive, younger version of myself. Um, but um, I was actually saying it goes the other way around. Oh, but, um, I'll take the compliment. Sure, 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 sure. Um, but but actually, you're more like Danny Boyle because um, Danny Boyle's the guy uh, who who has sort of made a movie in every single genre. So he's done sci-fi, but he's also done like family comedies, and then he's done Slumdog Millionaire, which who knows where that fits and then he's done horror movies and, and he's done dr dramas and thrillers and he basically keeps changing genre and you can't pin him down now your your previous book uh before this one was was about dietrich bonhoeffer uh bonhoeffer's youth work and now you've gone into faith formation now you've gone into um science and uh and and youth ministry so 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 what first of all before we even get there like are you, do you get bored easily and want a complete change <laughs> of topic? Is that what it is? Yeah, probably. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is my mind has been completely destroyed by uh, television and Netflix. And so um, I just have no attention span and I just move on very quickly. Um, now, the truth is, is that it's a very, very dumb idea as a business plan to just keep moving around. And uh, But that's what I've done. So I guess I do get bored easily. Um, and uh, I don't know. I tell my wife I'm miserable when I'm writing something, you know, huh. like writing a book. But I'm more miserable when I'm not. So I just keep getting up every day and typing away, trying to scrape some ideas out of my head painfully. Um, so, uh, yeah, so they are very different. Um, however, now to justify myself, um, there is, I think, a through line um, kind of through all these things. I, I don't think it's as like profound as, I don't know, some director having a through line or um uh, some maybe some great theologian, but uh, I you know the, the Bonhoeffer book connected to the faith formation book, then to the science book. Uh, it really is trying to explore how do we, as concrete as we can say, or in our really lived experience, encounter the presence of God. Um, can we? How can? How do we? The word I often use is how do we think about divine action? Does God still act in the world, and how do we live in a way that that represents that, that witnesses to that? And that for me, that always kind of lands in these deep moments of kind of relational connection, which goes back to Bonhoeffer, where Bonhoeffer, I've never kind of escaped Bonhoeffer's um, haunting of my life. And so Bonhoeffer's claim that Jesus Christ exists as church community or Jesus Christ exists as a community. Um, I'm, I've been, I think, trying to tease that out probably for my whole career of what that actually means, what that looks like for us. And, um, you know, like we said, with faith formation, this sense of is transcendence, is divine action, something we can believe. I think that takes us pretty quickly into having to talk about and wrestle with the claims of science. Mm -hmm. And so um, science, 
not completely, but in major part, science changes the conditions in which we all live. Um, the conditions where we once presumed that there were gods, there were demons, there was haunting, there was magic, all those things have uh, kind of disappeared for us Western people, and science played a major part in that. And I think young people are often crossed up around scientific questions. Um, like, okay, so you tell me there's a personal being in the universe who knows my name and cares about me, but we also know evolution says that there's going to be a mass extinction, and through pop culture right now, we're pretty worried about some kind of contagion or some kind of yeah. the end of the world. So how could there be a loving God, and yet everything's going to die? Um, and I think those become really interesting questions or, okay, so you're asking me to take communion and communion is important, but why is that important? And what, what would happen if we found aliens? Would the whole Christian story not make any sense to, to an alien? And, um, you know, all sorts of questions like that. So, uh, I, yeah, I got, I got interested in, the, in these scientific questions and uh, tried to wrestle with them a little bit. So I'm guessing you're not – it doesn't go the route of um, – I don't know if you've ever heard Louis Giglio's thing about there being a, um, a, a some sort of kind of – element or something that actually secretly holds the whole of the universe together and is in the shape of, when you put it under a microscope, it's actually in the shape of a cross. Uh, or, uh, or, or the idea that dark matter in, in the universe is actually all, it's all God. It's just those are the bits we haven't discovered yet are all God holding it all. So it's, it's not that kind of uh, book. No, it's not that kind of book. Um, but I think what uniquely the kind of book it is, is it's a book about, I tried to, I wrote it through kind of a fictional youth worker. Hmm. And so it's trying to, uh, I pick up this fictional youth worker and um, he gets kind of confronted with all these scientific ideas that he's not really able or, or trained to deal with, but they all come from his young people. And so then it's kind of taken into these larger scientific ideas like evolution, like Big Bang cosmology, and wrestling with them um, in and through the practice of ministry. So if there's a contribution, I think, in the book, I think youth ministry people will find it interesting just because it's about a youth worker. Mm. And I'm hoping, and I guess this is one of my missions in life, is to kind of stay within youth ministry but keep pushing out um, through youth ministry and, and as youth ministry as a vehicle into larger theological converse, conversations and trying to make a contribution. And I think there's an interesting way to think about the faith and science conversation uh, through the practice of ministry. And uh, so that's what the book kind of tries to do through a, a youth worker's kind of journey. So that is uh, Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs and Zombies, Youth Ministry in the Age of Science. And that is also now now out as well. So uh, you, are you writing another book already? <laughs> I yeah, I'm always working on something, so I'm torturing myself. Yeah, it's going to be Danny, write something else. Danny Boyle style. You're going to go in a completely different direction now. This will be American football and and whites wreck my life as a lens through <laughs> which to view youth ministry. Oh my gosh, that's a great idea. I might have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. I remember at the Youth Work Summit, you spent ages talking about whether dogs went to heaven. I feel like if you haven't done that one yet, that's that's surely a book you need to write. Yeah, there's there's one out about that too, yeah. Oh, perfect, yep. perfect. So um, before before you go, I know you've got a, um, you're flying and all sorts of things today. Um, I did ask our listeners if they had any questions for you. And, uh, okay. And I had a couple back. And I think we can we can knock some of these off really quickly. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you the ones I don't understand first. 
Okay. Okay. So the hardest one is um, in. Uh, this is uh, Mike Eddie Edwards who says in faith formation you talk of hypostasis, which we've covered, and the union with Jesus mm-hmm. and each other. What are your reflections on social media in this? In a way, culturally, we've never had an easier way to live in union, but yet we we don't seem to. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I you know I I always wish I was more of an expert on, on social media stuff um, because I think it's just such an interesting um, forum um, and it impacts our life in, in such a significant way. I mean, my, my take on it is that, uh, that it really is a, a major tool in the age of authenticity where uh, one of the major objectives in, in social media is to present yourself and to represent yourself and you can actually mold your representation. So in some ways it gives us all sorts of inner, uh, abilities to connect with each other but it also breaks down, I think, this deeper kind of relational connection that I'm I'm trying to pull us into. It, it doesn't have to, but it often does because it, it it moves us into this hyper kind of move of what Taylor calls the, the politics of recognition. So that in the age of authenticity where everyone gets to define for themselves what it means to be human, social media becomes your digital billboard mm. for you to yell out um, who you are and to ask other people to recognize you. Mm. And of course, the winners of social media are those who get the most likes and retweets, mm. which... Um, can connect us, but it can kind of connect us in this certain kind of, uh, at times competitive way. And I worry, and um, maybe your listeners will disagree, but I worry that sometimes it just, it takes people's beautiful, distinct, broken humanity and it, it, it flattens them down to some kind of ideological perspective. Mm-hmm. So I don't like what you tweeted. So I don't like you cause you're on that team. Um, and yeah. that political, t- that political side or whatever, and, and I'm against you. And at least that's what we're seeing in the States. I mean, they, this country's never been more divided and people quickly finding themselves in, in a, in a group and in kind of social media becoming a kind of echo chamber. So they only hear, um, things that support their views and, um, and then we have fake news everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I've, we've done so well not to talk about your president uh, in the first thirty <laughs> minutes. So let's not let's not spoil it now. Um, no, I, I just ate breakfast, so I don't really. Uh, know <laughs> There's a, this is a much easier one from Nathan Shipley who asks, uh, w- "What is your favorite root vegetable?" <laughs> I don't know. I'm embarrassed to say because then someone's going to tell me I I. I uh, I got it wrong. Um, are, are potatoes a root vegetable? I think potatoes are a root vegetable, aren't they? I mean, okay. that's got to be the winner. I, I think so. So, like, who, who's what American is opposed to French fries? You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like, that's uh, this this country was built on fatty, uh, <laughs> greasy foods. Uh, so that's what I'm about. Yeah, French fries. <laughs> okay, Chris Forster asks, uh, "What is the best book you read? I mean, you you wrote several, but what is the best book you read last year?" The best book I read last year. Gosh, that is a, a really good question. Best book I read. So you know what book that uh, I thought well, I th- maybe your listeners would lo- would like. Uh, since we've been talking about Charles Taylor, there's a really good book called um, I'm not going to remember the authors, but it's called uh, How to Survive the Apocalypse, huh. and it's a really interesting kind of cultural engagement. So I think that would make pretty close to the top of my list. I thought that was a great book. Okay, good. Uh, we'll get them to look that up. Uh, and uh, I don't know if this is a quick one or uh, or, or not. Uh, Mary Hawes asked, how can we explain the three seculars visually to help yeah. people understand? 
Well, if Mary has any ideas, she can let me know because uh, that's the the at least presentation um, hurdle that I'm, I'm trying to figure out of uh, what's a good way with a, a, a picture or something to, to explain these. So the, the three seculars, which if you really want to be cool, you can call them S1, S2, and S3. That's how uh, we know who's an insider here and who's retro. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it's just this sense of kind of uh, secular one is this sense of, uh, well, uh, the profane, the kind of sense of medieval Europe the, that some places are profane, some places are sacred. And then in secular one kind of is this move into private religion. In secular two, I kind of tend to think of it as more of a spatial reality where we start to think of religious and a-religious. And then secular three is what kind of we've been talking about, where the conditions of belief um, actually change. And I can't correct that if Mary figures it out, she can can let me know. I've done, you know, like thinking of things in planes, like up and down, stratified to thinking of things as spaces, but um, it doesn't seem to work. So I need some art major out there, graphic designer to come up with a, a, a good way to do it. They might just be listening. Uh, so final question goes to Mike uh, Edwards again, and he asks, uh, and I think you'll like this question, uh, what do you think the Vikings have done to offend God? Well, yes, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I told you I'm warped by TV, so I've watched the, the Vikings series. on, on uh, It's on History Channel here. And there's other, I think there's, isn't there some UK shows about Danes invading. Um, oh the UK, like the last king or something. Isn't there something like that? That's so are you suggesting so, that, the, that your football team is, is somehow wedded to the historic sins of the title of the team? That's what I'm saying. Wow. I'm saying that the abuses done in the 11th century or whatever by the Norsemen um, have meant that I can never see my team in, in the Super Bowl. And, that, and if that, that isn't the most egocentric, <laughs> narcissistic... American myopic uh, statement ever. Then uh, I don't know what is. But but that is a good place to end, and it's also the the, the probably the subject of your next uh, book. So uh, we'll be talking about it in a year's time. Um, Andy, thank you so so much for sparing the time and giving us such a full and extensive interview. Uh, we uh, we will make sure we give a shout out to the names of your books again. Uh, but uh, but thank you for sharing the time today. That was great. Thanks. Uh, this podcast was first published in February 2018. So if you've joined us in the last year or so, you may not have heard it. Um, so what a great excuse to play one of our best ever episodes to you again. And we'll be back with brand new episodes from September.